0: redemption as he's about to go to the cross, the very reason for which Jesus had come. And just like the very opening of the Bible in Genesis, when you turn to Genesis and we read about God in the garden and this drama beginning in a a garden and there being a betrayal, this time too the story comes to the garden. It's not the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus journeyed that night with his disciples following the private teaching of John chapter 13 to 17. And now we come to, to John chapter 18. And so let's check it out in verse one. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now the Brook Kidron was to the east of the city of uh, Jerusalem between, it lay in the valley between uh, Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Um, the very mount from which Jesus would ascend into heaven in a matter of days when he was raised from the dead. It's the same mount upon which the scripture teaches to us and declares to us that Jesus will return to when he comes at his second coming. And so the journey towards this Garden of Gethsemane uh, on on the foothills of the Mount of Olives was kind of this backwards retracing of the steps Jesus had taken on the day of the triumphal entry. Um there, there on the, the slopes of the Mount of Olives was this private garden where Jesus had often sought out a place of peace and rest and some solitude and some time for prayer with the Lord and with the 12. And so to get there, he goes down into this valley. He crosses the brook Kidron. And Kidron is interesting. It, it means this. It means murky, the murky brook. And it was murky because... The Brook Kidron is where all the blood flowed off the Temple Mount into this little brook and then r- was rinsed out of the area of Jerusalem. And so this, this creek was often flowing with blood, which is hard to imagine. You go, oh, really? Can a creek flow with blood? We have to remember this is Passover time. And the Jews were in a, a week of festivities at Passover. They were going to sacrifice 250,000 Lambs for Passover celebration. And so it's true that this creek was murky. It would flow with blood. And you just have to imagine, you know, like picture Jesus traveling to that garden of Gethsemane. He knows all that's coming towards him. And he crosses the murky brook, which I imagine already has some blood flowing in the midst of it, foreshadowing what was going to happen. It's interesting that that King David also crossed over this same brook. The King David, when he was betrayed by his son Absalom, and and at that time, many of the people of Jerusalem joined the rebellion against King David. He was rejected by the city over which he was king. He was rejected by many of the people over which whom he was king. And David took the same route as he fled from Jerusalem. And now Jesus, he's not fleeing. He's just going to have some time of prayer, but he follows the same uh, path. And of course, Jesus is called the son of the son of David he's going to be rejected as well and there's this pattern repeating in in scripture and so Jesus makes his way to the garden. John doesn't tell us a lot about uh, the time of prayer that Jesus spent there with with the twelve how he withdrew with Peter, James and John a little further into the garden and the intensity of the prayer that night as he went so far as to sweat great drops of blood as He was feeling the weight and the pressure of all that was coming upon him that night. But for John's account, as we look at John's gospel and his account of the betrayal of Jesus, what comes to the forefront is this, as I was just studying this, the most important part for John and the recounting of what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed was that Jesus voluntarily surrendered himself. For John, that's what matters. That's what he wants to communicate through his gospel. And, and Jesus had, had foreshadowed this and John had told us about this when Jesus spoke of himself as the good shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd and he, and he said this, speaking of his life, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my, of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And so for John, the voluntary nature of Jesus Surrendering himself is very important. So check it out. Verse two says this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So John tells us Judas knew this place. We know this about this accounting of Jesus' passion. He knew where to find Jesus, and Judas had gone and done this. He had gone and betrayed Jesus, and he had procured this band of of soldiers. Now, you know, when we think of a band, we think of like five-piece drummer, you know, guitar player, bass. That's not what this text is telling us, the original language actually mean a band of soldiers was one-tenth of a Roman legion. It's hard to imagine this. We kind of miss some of these details sometimes when we read the gospel stories, you know. But a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And Judas had procured a band which was was one-tenth of a Roman legion, so he had something with him. In excess of 600 soldiers, officers, and people with their torches and their lanterns. Now, I don't know about you, but often in my mind, when I like read the gospel accounts, I think, "Oh, like, oh yeah, there's like 40 people there, and they're arresting Jesus." But that's not the picture. That's not what happened. I, I, I don't know what it looked like. I kind of, as I was thinking more about this this week, I thought maybe they organized, and and three quarters of these soldiers surrounded the garden so that all the perimeters and exits were covered so that Jesus had nowhere to go. I don't know if they all went into the garden. Maybe they were just present, a lot of them guarding those exits, and then a couple hundred of them or 300 of them or 400 of them went into the garden to make sure that Jesus didn't escape. And we get this picture that they've got torches, they've got lanterns, they've got their weapons, but it's Passover, which means that it's full moon. It's not, you know, like a dark, dreary day like today. It felt so black in here this morning. It's just the grayness outside. But that's not what it was like that night. The moon was shining. It was, it was bright out. But they came with their torches and their lanterns. And, and I imagine that in their minds, they thought that Jesus was going to try and escape. That he'd find the closest exit that he would attempt to run, but instead, Jesus did this, and it's important for this gospel account, he voluntarily surrendered. They didn't have to search him out in the garden. When they came into the garden, Jesus came forward to them, and Jesus said, whom do you seek? Whom are you looking for? And John tells us that Jesus did that knowing everything that was going to happen to him. It wasn't no, there was no surprises here for him. That means that, that Jesus was totally aware mentally. He was, he was conscious in the sense that he was totally aware of everything that was happening that night. Jesus even went into the garden knowing, he went right to that garden knowing that Judas had gone to bargain uh, for a betrayal, that Judas had gone to sell him to the chief priests. He knew that Judas would procure a band of, of soldiers, he knew that he would come looking for him in the familiar place where together they had often found solitude and rest and peace and quiet to pray. And so John wants us to know this, this was voluntary on Jesus' part, the surrender. Between the time, like if you stop and think about it, between the time that Jesus had exposed Judas in the upper room as the betrayer and the actual a rest in the garden, a number of hours had gone by, maybe two or maybe three hours. And in that time, knowing that he was to be betrayed, Jesus easily could have like, got out of Dodge. He could have left Jerusalem. He could have gone and covered some miles or gone into some hiding place where he would not have been found, but instead Jesus went to the garden where Judas would know exactly where to find him. Because they had often gone there together. I mean, you read this and we know this about Jesus, but it's a good reminder for us this morning that that at any moment Jesus could have saved himself, but he deliberately went to the place where he knew Judas would find him. And when the mob arrived, Jesus boldly walked up to them and said, and asked, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? (coughs) Check out verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So he asked them again, sorry, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not, I have lost not one. (coughs) Excuse me. The surrender of of Jesus was this that he gave himself on behalf of others. We see that that the cross, that the work of the cross is vicarious. He did it on behalf of other people. He surrendered Himself vicariously, Jesus surrendered himself on your behalf. Jesus surrendered himself on behalf of his disciples. Jesus offered himself up so that not one of those whom the Father had given to him would be lost. Not one. And specifically, Jesus said this, if it's, if it's me you seek, if I'm the, whom are you looking for? If I'm the one you're looking for, then let my disciples go, let these men go. And Jesus came forward on, on their behalf. Jesus willingly came forward and he surrendered on your behalf. And he asked them, whom, whom do you seek? And, and they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. In your script, in, in your Bible, you, you'll see that it'll say, I am he. But there's a, there's a footnote that he actually said, I am. They just, for some reason, they do that in translation from the original language to English, but it's I am. He said, I am. Declaring himself to be God, making the claim of deity. As soon as, as, soon as they heard it, I, I imagine this, that torches dropped to the ground, that lanterns fell and smashed in pieces. I mean, John tells us that this 600 plus soldiers drew back and fell to the ground at his answer. Isn't that astounding? It's amazing. The armor clanked, swords dropped, lanterns smashed, torches fell to the ground. At the power of Jesus' proclamation, I am. With Judas was this this band of merry men. And there they were laying on the ground. And right at that moment, you know, Jesus could have like walked out of the garden like Moses walking through the Red Sea with the tribes of Israel. He could have slipped away from their grasp grasp as he had done with the crowd in Nazareth. But instead, he waited for them to collect themselves and pick up their items and their torches and their lanterns and to get up on their feet and to dust themselves off. And then he asked them again, whom do you seek? And the second time, I imagine this, that they answered with a little more caution and humility. They got ready like a defensive line in the football game, you know. Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> and, and they braced themselves for his answer and Jesus answered them in verse 8. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And verse 9 says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those you gave me, I have not, I have lost not one. I, I don't think that there was any argument from Judas's band of marrying men when Jesus said of his disciples, If you seek me, let these guys go. They just said, Okay. Okay. You know, they had been knocked to the ground by the sheer power of his proclamation, I am and, and though they had come to arrest him, what we see is this, is that who's in control? Jesus is in control. Th- this, this was a surrender more than it was an arrest. Jesus surrendered consciously and voluntarily and vicariously on, on the part of his disciples. And then we read in, in verse 10, then, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You know, one of the things that we see about this surrender of Jesus, that it was loving, even for his enemies, for his disciples, and for his enemies. And, and here's Peter in his zeal. Peter in his his passion for Jesus. He pulls out his sword. He takes a swing at this man that we're told is named Malchus who eventually became a follower of Jesus and was in the church and known many years later. And, and Peter was not trying to take off his ear. He was trying to take off his head. And it was probably some quick reflexes on the part of Malchus that got his head out of the way and only had his, had his ear taken off by, by Peter. And, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus put his hand on the man's ear and healed him. I don't know if he had to stoop and pick it up off the ground or if it was hanging there by a little hunk of flesh or what the deal was, but it's, it's actually the last recorded miracle that Jesus ever performed. Think about that. A miracle to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own men. Uh, to heal a wound inflicted on the ear of an enemy by one of Jesus's right-hand men who was indiscriminately flailing a sword around. And it was probably nervous energy and impulsive haste for, for Peter that we know he was so well known for. But Jesus rebuked him and, and told him to put his sword away and Jesus declared that his surrender was motivated by love. I'm, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? L- love for the Father was the foremost primary motivation for Jesus. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, if the Father is permitting this, If this suffering is allowed by the Father, if this is his plan, then Jesus says, I'm willing to endure it. Love for the Father motivated him. Love for his disciples motivated him. And and Jesus was sparing the 12 or the 11 from, from arrest and trial. Like imagine this, if Jesus hadn't healed Malchus that night, maybe there would have been four crosses at Golgotha rather than three. Rather than just two thieves and Jesus, maybe, maybe Peter would have been there as well. So, they, so we read here that they, they took Jesus and they bound him, but it wasn't ropes that bound him. It was love. I mean, ropes were not going to hold Jesus. At a, at a proclamation, he dropped 600 soldiers to the ground. Ropes aren't going to hold him. He was held, he was bound, <clears throat> excuse me, by love. And we read in verse 12, So the the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now I read this and it's like weird. Don't you think that? It's like, what? Father-in-law, high priest for the year, Like, what's going on here? What does the father-in-law of the high priest have to do with anything? And it's strange to me that you'd even read that Caiaphas is the high priest for a year. What, did he get voted in? Like, isn't, well, we know this. We read this in scripture that the actual practice was that when a man was made the high priest, he served in that role for the rest of his life. It wasn't a one-year term. Like, some official, some elected official but so here's, how, here's what was going on. Annas was actually the rightful high priest. The father-in-law was the rightful high priest. In fact, he had served as high priest in Jerusalem from the year 5 to the year 16, 11 years. And what had happened was this, is that he was like uh, hard to deal with. And so the Romans had enough of Annas. So they removed him from being high priest. So Annas did this. He installed his oldest son, as the high priest. And then what happened was the Romans had enough of him. So Annas installed his next son as the high priest. And when the Romans had enough of him, they removed him. And this happened four times with Annas's four sons until he had no sons left. So you know what he did? He put his son-in-law in as the high priest. He appointed his own son-in-law as the high priest. And, and uh, so, yeah, have you ever watched The Godfather? Well, that was Annas. <laughs> like, just to give you a picture, that was Annas, whom Jesus has brought to here. That's pretty much the idea that, that he and his family, they could be referred to as the familia, you know, like the Casa Nostra of Jerusalem. They were like the mafia. And you know what Jesus had done? He'd gone into the temple. He'd turned over the tables of the money changers. He had chased out of the temple those who were selling livestock and those who had turned the house of the Lord into a den of robbers, i.e. Annas, the godfather of the whole operation. And so Annas, is, he's, he's very powerful in Jerusalem. He's very wealthy because of his family business, which was a racket, not the tennis kind. And, and no one would have ever dared to challenge Annas until Jesus came into the temple. And from the day that Jesus had turned over those tables and done the things that he had done, he was the sworn enemy of Annas because he had touched Annas's pride. He had touched Annas's pocketbook. And like a mafia boss does, this guy had planned Jesus's end. Now the amazing thing is, is that his son-in-law, the scripture tells us, Caiaphas, had actually prophesied that it was expedient which is family talk, mafia talk, it was expedient that one man should die for all the people. And he was right. It's amazing that God had spoken to this man. And then John zooms us out a little bit to what's happening outside Annas' house. We read in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was, who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, if we just told this disciple's unnamed. We think it's John. Makes sense that it's John, the writer of this gospel. Now the question is, you got to wonder is, how was John known to the high priest? We don't know. I thought, I was thinking about that. I thought, well, maybe uh, Annas had his fingers in the fishing business. It's part of his mafia gig. The sons of Zebedee were under his thumb a little bit. Who who knows? But somehow he knew the family of the high priest. and, And so there's Peter and John. They followed Jesus after he's been arrested and bound and led to Annas' house. All the other disciples have fled. But they get to Annas' house and Peter is forced to wait outside at at the home of Annas while John goes inside and so John negotiates and he gets Peter in. And in fact, uh, it was a servant girl who was watching at the door who brought Peter in and then verse 17 tells us this exchange between the servant girl and Peter. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. I, what strikes me about this is the contrast between Peter's answer to the question and the answer that Jesus gave in the garden. See the I ams. I am, I am not. I am not. Je- Jesus said, I am. And Peter said, I am not. Jesus, in fact, said, twice I am, and we'll see in a moment, Peter will say it twice, I am not. I always like Peter in scripture. Don't you like Peter? He's a character from which you can learn a lot and, and, and who seems familiar. Peter's following Jesus. He's followed Jesus from, from the garden, but it was from a distance. He was following from a distance and it's an important lesson to observe that when you follow Jesus from a distance, you're not in a good spot. You get yourself in trouble when you follow Jesus from distance. Following Jesus from distance led Peter next to, to warm himself by the enemy's fire. Look at verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's amazing because we know from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, what did his body do? He sweat. He perspirated and, and blood mixed with it because there was so much pressure upon him, great drops of blood. And, that, and that's like not long before, but we read here, and it was cold outside that, that Peter joined this crowd standing around the fire. And, and you know, I, I want to ask you this. A thought from this text for me was this. When you're cold, and I'm speaking spiritually, where do you warm yourself? If you go to the fires of this world to warm yourself, when you're confused or when you're lonely or when you're hurting, you, you'll get burned. Ask Peter. And it's amazing, you know, it's the week of prayer. Listen, church, if your heart's cold, it's amazing what prayer will do. Prayer will get you sweating. Prayer will ignite your heart. Prayer will ignite your passion for Jesus and for the kingdom of God. It's amazing how prayer gets you sweating, even on a cold night, even in the cold. We read in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So Annas begins with this line of questioning for Jesus about his disciples, about his teaching. And when I read this, it almost seems to me, I don't know if you feel like this, but it almost feels like Jesus is kind of like a little bit rude and cheeky back to him. Look at verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. Ask those who have heard me heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. It's like I said, it's like Jesus is saying, look at everything I've got to say I've said in public. Why don't you get some witnesses together and ask them? And, it's, and it, to me it sounds like he's being... Cheeky, but I don't think Jesus is being cheeky. Jesus is pointing something out to Annas. He's saying, Annas, this is illegal. What you're doing here right now, the, the Jewish justice system was just like like our own, and they actually had laws that, that they couldn't sit in court at night. And this is in the middle of the night, in the wee hours of the morning, actually. And And in the Jewish system of justice, just like our own, system of justice. We don't, we don't expect a, a, a man to incriminate himself with his own mouth. You, you need witnesses to testify. You need witnesses to say, this is what this person did and this is what this person said. You know, when I was a kid, my, my dad, what was that show called? I was trying to remember. Harry Mason? Do you remember Harry Mason? Black and white. When I was a kid. Now, Perry, Perry. Perry Mason, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, something's not right there. When I was a kid, okay, this is, when I was a kid, all the reruns were on TV, right? My dad loved Perry Mason. We'd watch Perry Mason. For me, that grew into love and law and order and all these cop shows and lawyer shows. And you know this. Then what this Annas is asking is a, is a leading, leading question. And Jesus' answer is his objection. That's what he's saying. I object to this line of questioning. He's not trying to get off. He's helping Annas recognize his his own guilt. This was an illegal trial. Jesus was saying, you got to have witnesses. If you're you're trying to incriminate me, you got to have some witnesses. And we know that before Pilate, finally they did produce witnesses, but they had to like get these guys to fabricate stories. And then even then when they brought witnesses to Pilate, they couldn't Their stories didn't align. They couldn't get the facts straight. And and Jesus is like, well, you want me to answer? You want me to testify against myself in a case where you've already determined the outcome? It's all predetermined. This is a farce. It's a kangaroo court. They'd already judged him. And what do we know about Jesus? We know this, that he was without sin. That they couldn't produce a witness. That there was nothing to incriminate him with. And so this, I think, was a a subtle rebuke to Annas. This was Jesus holding up the mirror for Annas. Annas, look in the mirror, my friend. Take a closer look at yourself. Jesus says, I don't do things in secret. I don't wait until it's dark to act. To do, you know, it's amazing, right? The scripture tells us that about sin, about evil men, that they do things in darkness. Jesus says, I don't wait for dark to do things. Everything I've said, I've said in the synagogue. Everything that I've declared, I've declared in the temple. People have heard me. Heard me. I, I, I don't speak in darkness, Annas. And here's Annas. He's the guy who's really, you know, the puppet master. He's the actual high priest, or should be the high priest. And he's supposed to be God's representative. And standing before him is the son of God. And in unbelief, this man had already condemned Jesus. This this interrogation was merely, you know, just seeking a reason to justify actions that he had already determined were going to happen. Look at verse 22. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? You know, later they would they would spit on him. They would strip him. They would flog him. Things were just getting started. In fact, they, they put it you know, it's one thing to take a punch when you can see it coming, but it's a whole nother thing when they put a bag over your head and then repeatedly punch you and tell you, hey, prophesy who hit you when you can't see it coming. You can't do what Malchus did at the sword. Kind of prepare yourself a little bit. But that's what they did with Jesus. And, This was just the start. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John doesn't tell us the details about that. He he, he leaves it out. But what he does tell us next is what happened with Peter. Verse 25. We're just going to go to verse 27 this morning. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. There it is again. I am not. I am not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. It's crazy. You know, just a couple hours earlier, Peter was swearing his love and his loyalty to Jesus. Even if all turned from you, Jesus, I will not. Now he was saying, I am not. Not identify, would, would not be identified with Jesus. You know, and, and, and th- like I said earlier that evening, he was telling Jesus, Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. And it's true, you know, when you look at Peter, like Peter did more for Jesus that night or did, did more than any of the other disciples that, that night. He, he followed further than anybody, but... Then things turned around and it's a tragedy. Like you read this, it's like a tragedy. Peter went in the wrong direction. He was the only one who stood up and fought for Jesus in the garden. While the others were clearly thinking, okay, how do I get out of here? Where's the, clear, where's the nearest exit? How do I get out of this? And now Peter, who stood up there, it's got a very clear reversal going on in his heart and in his life. And, and the whole earlier incident with the sword and the servant. Malchus, you know, it's, it's like, it's interesting. Isn't it easy to go, well, I'm going to help Jesus? To have your own ideas of what it means to help, to help Jesus, and then you discover, oh, I didn't really understand what Jesus wanted with regards to this. And that was Peter. He had ideas about how he was going to help Jesus. And, and, and he faced all of those soldiers in the garden, but then he's confronted by a little girl with a question. Firstly, what we read about earlier, a servant girl, are you one of his disciples? And the guy falls apart. Now to me that's crazy because it, it makes me think, what the heck, like how do you stand up to soldiers and cave in front of a servant girl? And you know it's true that there are times when it's the little things that are way more dangerous than the big things in following Jesus. The little temptations can be more dangerous than the big temptations to sin. It's, e- it's easy to recognize the big dangerous sins and to say, okay, I got to steer clear from that. I, gotta, I, I, I can see that coming and I'm out of here. But the scripture tells us it's the little foxes that ruin the vine. It's the little things that we don't, so easily recognize it's it's the little occasions that when we're confronted with something that you didn't expect and you weren't ready for, and they can take you out. Peter wasn't ready. He was ready earlier. He had his sword. He was ready. P- Peter had been ready to fight. And then, guess what? He wasn't ready. Caught off guard. And to me, the collapse is like, the collapse of Peter is like so. So sudden. And it's like, wow, that's like inherent in you and I. That's inherent in the nature of the flesh that apart from the grace of God, what do we say? There go I. Like Peter, apart from God's grace, there go I. And and we need the we th- it tells us this about Peter that and and about for you and I. We need God's grace at work in our lives. We need the supernatural power of God's grace at work in it in our lives, to preserve us. And Peter's a great picture of human nature. And and here here he is, he says the wrong thing because he didn't want to say to a girl that he was a disciple. There's a lot of men that have made that mistake. Isn't it true, guys? There's a lot of men that for a girl didn't want to say that they were a disciple. Don't do that for a girl, man. Don't do that for a girl. Peter did it for a servant girl. Then he's asked again. He goes by the, by the fire and, he, and he's asked and he, and he says, no. I, I'm, I. And Then he says a third time. This time it's by a man who's a relative of Malchus. Remember Malchus? He'd cut off his ear. It's somebody who was present in the garden who said, aren't you the guy? Yes, I saw you singing a sword earlier, didn't I? For this Jesus guy? I, I was in the garden too. And Peter's like, no. It, it, it's, to me it's amazing that Peter could face soldiers and he couldn't face, well here he couldn't face the relative of someone he had hurt. And then the rooster crowed. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I actually read, I didn't know this, but that roosters were outlawed in the city of Jerusalem. So this was unique. To hear this sound was like not the usual in Jerusalem, but they heard it and they recognized it. And as you watch Peter, you know, you you see his actions actually really parallel Psalm 1. If you're not familiar with Psalm 1, I would encourage you to go home today and read Psalm chapter 1. Because Psalm 1 tells us about the man who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. And that's what Peter did. Peter walked with the crowd into the courtyard of the high priest. You know, Peter shouldn't have actually followed Jesus at this point. Jesus had already negotiated Peter's release. He wasn't supposed to be there. It had been negotiated on his behalf. He was already free. Jesus had vicariously offered himself up. You can bind me, but let these men go. And there Peter stood with the enemy by the fire, and before long, like the, the psalmist tells us in Psalm chapter 1, he sat down with the enemy. And the truth is, if you warm yourself by the, by the enemy's fire, eventually you'll, this will happen. If you, if you get in the habit of warming yourself at the enemy's fire, you will get burned. And Peter's amazing because, you know what? I see myself in Peter. Do you see yourself in Peter? (laughs) (laughs) Or a bit of Peter in yourself? And what we know from the other gospel accounts is this, is that his denial of his Lord broke his heart. At that point, when the rooster crowed, he knew what he had done. And he fled from that place. That's what the scripture tells us. Thankfully for Peter, for Peter and for you and I, a few days later, Peter met Jesus and he was restored, and he saw the risen Lord. But you know, as I think about this this story and the characters in this story, the the, the tragic thing is, is that you can't say the same thing for Annas and you can't say the same thing for Judas. They weren't restored to anything with the Lord. In fact, I would, I would say that, well, obviously these guys didn't, they didn't love Jesus, Judas and Annas. Peter loved Jesus. And, and I, I think about Judas, you know, when you, when you think about Judas and compare him and Peter, it's like, wow, both guys had remorse. And the tragic thing is, is that, that Judas' remorse did not lead him to repentance. We know what Judas did, even though John doesn't tell us in his gospel account that Judas went out in another little valley just around the corner from where the brook Kidron was. And he hung himself. He took his life. R- remorse for him led to, to suicide. But for Peter, remorse led to repentance. Repentance. It's interesting, you know, you can have different kinds of remorse. Like, we all have remorse in life. We can have remorse with regards to our relationship with Jesus. I can't believe I did this, fill in the blank, with regards to my relationship with Jesus. How could I have done this to my Lord? How could I have done this to my Savior? How could I do this to the one who vicariously surrendered himself voluntarily, lovingly for me in my place? And I... Did this to him? Fill in the blank. There can be different kinds of remorse, and the one that we need to have is the one that that leads to repentance, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. You know, Jesus is so amazing when you when you. Read the gospel accounts, and as we look at this this morning, it's like it's amazing that Jesus, through this whole situation, through everything that happened that night, is in control of everything. He's ruling over everything, even in the hour of his betrayal and arrest. Jesus is calm. To me, he's like stately in his bearing, he's majestic, he's awesome. Jesus is glorious. He's not in fear. It's not out of control for him. He knows everything that was going to happen and he chose it. He chose to die. He chose to, he voluntarily allowed himself to be arrested and all along his concern was for his disciples. Let these men go. And Peter ended up where he shouldn't have been. Just like you and I end up where we shouldn't have been. Where we want to be with the Lord is in the garden. That's what I think. And in the garden, that's where Jesus says, man, you can, you can tie me up and let these men go. My life for theirs. Take me and let the others go free. And you know, that's the story of the cross. That's the story of the cross. And when you look at, that's the story of the gospel. Let these ones go free as they put their faith in me. And the one thing that that I think about with regards to this is is these characters. I go, wow, Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, Peter. If I'm going to be counted in that group, I want to be counted with Peter. I want to be counted with Peter because, boy, you know, really, like, you think about these men, Peter especially and Judas especially, we wouldn't even know who they are in history. You know why we know who they are? Because we know who Jesus is. It's their relationship to Jesus that we speak about or their lack thereof 2,000 years later. For Judas, it was the lack thereof. For Peter, it was the fact that godly sorrow led him to repentance. And church, I just want to remind you, as we, at, as we look at this story, you know, the one thing that lasts and the one thing that matters for a person is their relationship with Jesus. Jesus. When all else is gone, when all else has failed, when this world is no more, when you pass away, when eternity comes, the one thing that matters is your relationship with Jesus. And for Peter, putting that right involved repentance. Repentance involves two actions. There's two actions to repentance. Firstly, it's a turning away from sin. A turn from sin. And the second part of that action is that I turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That's repentance. To turn from sin and to turn to Jesus in faith. And this morning, I'm just like grateful as we just considered in the narrative of John chapter 18 that we have these examples. And there's all these warnings here for us. Let's be like Peter, you guys. No matter what happens. Let's let's look, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus.